Welcome to Mark My Words, a podcast that not only aims to inspire and teach the listener about entrepreneurship, it also aims to give my guests an opportunity to talk about their unique journey in entrepreneurship and life. So join me and my guests as we meet at the crossroads on Mark My Words. Today on Mark My Words, I have a guest who has a lot of expertise in a lot of topics related to psychotherapy and mindfulness that I can only, as Blondie said in the song 1159, I'm just a sidewalk social scientist. And that's where it begins and ends for me. And that's why I love having people like Wendy Nash, who is a mindfulness meditation coach, and she kindly asks you to cut the crap. And today, or maybe not even ask, maybe she's telling you, kindly cut the crap. We'll let Wendy answer that one. But Wendy Nash, welcome to Mark My Words. How are you doing today? Thank you. It's the morning, so I'm calling from uh, Australia. And, uh, you know, there's, there, there is a thing here, a tradition in Australia, and uh, it's more common now, where, and I, and I think it's really important to think about where we've come from, says where we are, and where we're going. So I just always like to acknowledge that where I'm calling from is Aboriginal land and that this is Gabi uh, Gabi country and to pay the respects to the elders past, present and emerging. And they have been taking care of the land for about 70,000 years and we have managed to trash it in just a couple of hundred. <laughs> but, oops. Um, but uh, there's a lot of care, there's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of thoughtfulness that has gone into uh, really making the most of this land for it to be well and healthy. And, yeah, it's just unfortunate we weren't able to listen very well to that. Well, I, I really appreciate your perspective on that and just the conservational mindset that you have for your country and that land and the respect that you're giving it. I know myself, I'm very much like respectful of, you know, I always want to recycle everything and, you know, I want to take care of wherever I am and do my part as well. So I really appreciate that perspective and that mindset and I'm guessing that's where kindly cut the crap comes into play rather than me being American. I'm just like, just cut the crap. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be kind, you know. And what does cut the crap mean? It means a few different things. One is to just like get straight to the point. But it also means to really think about what do you need in life? And what is just noise? 
That but is to 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 do that, you know, like we can be quite brutal. I'm quite brutal with myself. And so therefore I'm quite brutal with other people. So I've had to learn, you know, like I was a really angry person 20 years ago before I started this. And now I I uh well I'm not. So not very often anyway. I think I was one, angry once last year. So you know, it's been quite a journey. Um, yeah, so I think it's really important to really think about what, what is important here and to always be kind about the way that we go about what is important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think... We live in such a fast-paced society now that I think we oftentimes forget or just don't really have the time to take a deeper look within and filter out that noise. And that's where people like you, like, I think I'm, I'm a pretty mindful person, but if you've been practicing for 20 years, and have this type of background, I mean, I'm more than likely not half as mindful as you. And I can't wait to hear more about your journey and how you got here. And uh, yeah, I, I think not only me, but hopefully the audience will learn a lot from what you have to offer. and gave you a little bit of room there to say something if if you're I, I wasn't I, I wasn't sure did you want me to go into where I started and how I came into this is that where you you'd like me to go or would you like to do something else actually uh we're, we're gonna get to that part usually on this show I've kind of made a little bit of a tradition to go way way back so you obviously have had a fascination with psychotherapy, mindfulness for a long time. As you were growing up, was that fascination there? Was there something else that you wanted to do? How did you get to where you're at today? No, it's sheer desperation. <laughs> I'd love to say I was great reading people. I was just such a natural. That's like so not true. <laughs> I was a complete calamity in, in kind of everything, to be honest. Um, I mean, I had quite a complex early life. I had a, a younger sister who was born with a terminal illness when I was one, and um, and she she died 18 months later. It was such a roller coaster. And then my grandparents died, and I was bullied at school. It was really awful. I was failing at school. And then my father was diagnosed, and then he he died in very complicated circumstances. Basically, he was a guy, and he didn't go to the doctor. So if you're a guy and you're not well, go to the doctor. Otherwise, you might die at 46, just putting it out there. So just to, it's important. We've learned through COVID the impact that we can have when suddenly we're there and suddenly we're not, you know. So that's really important. We need to pay attention to the people who love us and we keep well for the people who love us, not necessarily for ourselves. So um, so I was, I was pretty bitter and angry and hurt and I was trying really hard to get it together. I was trying really, I really wanted to figure out who I was. 
I remember at one point as a as a child, I was in primary school, maybe 10 years old. I had I was quite insightful when I was about 10. As I was so baffled by everything, I couldn't figure out what was going on, how things were. And I was walking along the street and uh, in the in the suburb where I grew up, and there was a church, a small little church on the side, and it said, Jesus loves everyone. And I, my family were atheist. My father was certainly atheist. Um, and I thought, Jesus is one person. He loves everyone. I want everyone to feel loved. I feel really unloved. I don't want anybody to feel like me. So I'm going to find out how to love everyone. So that I guess at some level that, that just triggered that one of my teachers, he says that people are born with um, an enlightenment drive, an awakening drive, a spiritual drive. And I think some people are. I don't think it's for everybody. Not everybody's that way inclined. But, but for me, that I guess that sparked it. And then basically I lived in a few different countries. I was trying to figure out who I was. And then I lived, um, I got married and he was just not working and he left and I just went, oh, everything that I thought I was right about, turns out I was wrong. So I kind of, I was wrong about who I was. I was wrong about how the world was. I was wrong about everything, every, everything. And everything was up for grabs. And so I did this huge review process after my divorce found a very, very good psychotherapist. And she just said, you are way too uptight. So you need to take up meditation. She's a very strong Zen practitioner at the time. And, and I just applied, you know, this uh, restraint really is what I applied. So instead of rah, and you're there and it's your fault, I'm angry, rah, I just had to I learned very, very slowly, it took a long time to just not, I guess, not react. And now I don't even believe 90% of the rubbish that goes through my mind. But I'm always learning, like, I'm astounded at how. So, so I was doing a, an interview a, um, a couple of months ago, I guess, and I saw the interview afterwards and I and I, I I was slightly intimidated by the guy and I thought I look so cold and aloof. It was very different from my own inner reality. And then I thought, oh, I'm just really frightened here. And it made me realize how wrong I was. So inwardly, I I was thought I was being charming and warm and inviting, but actually I just came across cold aloof and superior it was such an eye-opener so then I started to look at well why I'm really afraid here actually and I started to really own that so now that's where I am so I don't know if I answered your question but that's what started me and, and I'm still very much on the learning process I'm not sure I'm as mindful as I would like but I'm probably more mindful than most people for sure that's actually a really fascinating story. And I know some of the questions that you have asked yourself over the course of time, they're the same kind of questions I've asked myself. 
IQ was bullied a lot and just kind of like subtly discluded from a lot of things and mm -hmm. you know it does something to your mind mm -hmm. and how you mm -hmm. perceive others and how you perceive society and fitting mm -hmm. in and mm -hmm. all that stuff and mm -hmm. it's interesting that you felt like you said that you were really in touch with yourself and you felt like you knew yourself so well and then one day you were like okay I don't know if I know myself half as well as I thought and mm -hmm. I can really relate to what you're saying because mm -hmm. I feel like I'm super in touch with who I am and mm -hmm. I've certainly had a lot of moments where I've been like okay I'm not as not quite as in touch with who I am as maybe I thought and maybe that's something we all go through I don't know if we're ever going to get that 100% right but I mean it's something that even somebody like me who I feel like you and I have had a little bit of a similar uh, path just as people I mean I can totally relate to that moment of like, okay, I'm not as in touch as I thought I was. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the need to reevaluate and mm -hmm. find yourself. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I say that quote unquote, find yourself. So mm -hmm. you're going through all this stuff. Where does the idea of studying psychotherapy and mindfulness when does that start to come into play for you? I just felt there was something about the way I was interacting with people that wasn't like there seemed, I could sort of sense there was a pattern, but I didn't know what it was that I was doing that was causing the problem. Um, yeah, it was actually just before I met that therapist, I had, I had seen another therapist before that. So there were a kind of, I was trying, like I started seeing therapists when I was 17 and it wasn't until I met this one in my mid-30s that I found it was a really good fit. And I think there is something about, that is, um, that is a, something that I think that the psychotherapeutic community probably needs to look at is when they're not so good, actually. Um, yeah, so I think there is something about doing that. Anyway, I digress. Um, but what is it that, that started that? Um, I think I was just, as I said, so desperate. I couldn't figure out what I was doing that was problematic. And... And I just, I just knew I had to figure out something and I didn't know how else I was going to do it except that training. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, ugh, I'm getting tongue-tied here. For one thing, turning 30, I always tell people that turning 30 is like a really important time and not just turning 30 itself, but getting into your 30s, I know personally, 
it was really life changing. And it was a time in my life where I feel like I really started to like, although I still feel like I'm searching and have plenty of ground to cover, I really started to like feel like I was figuring myself out and finding myself a little bit. Like I felt more familiar might be the right word with myself. Mm-hmm. And I, it's no surprise to me that you mentioned your 30s as a time, like kind of a crossroads. And I tell everybody that and I feel like it's so true. And you can go through that, I guess, at any age, but I feel like as you're growing up and getting into your 20s, you're so wide-eyed and you're just in awe of life and, you know, just trying to experience things. And I think once you have those experiences, it's like, okay, now who am I? What adjustments do I need to make in order to bring my life to another level? And very quickly, I also want to mention that I really relate to the pattern that you're finding in yourself because I know for me, there are also some patterns that I've seen with myself, like things that have just kind of happened over and over again in my life that I've really needed to take stock of and try to figure out, okay, why is this happening? What adjustment do I need to make? And Mm -hmm. I can relate to the fact that you had a moment there where you were like, wait a minute, I act like that? I do that? Like, no way, you know? You don't think of yourself as like, I, I hate to say like, probably the best way to put it for me is you don't think of yourself as imperfect. You always think that you have like the best intentions and you're doing things the right way. But I know for me, I've had to take a step back and be like, wait a minute, I'm not doing certain things the way I should. There's something I'm missing and there's a pattern. So I I really just wanted to throw that in there. I knew I was going to love this conversation. (laughs) So just tell me, you know, like when you think back, like I remember at one point with my counsellor going, oh, people tell you stuff all the time about what's not working. But there's something that we don't listen because, well, I'm sorry if my window's a bit noisy. Um, But there's something about, well, I'm not like that. They've misunderstood me and I block that noise and it's noise it's not sound. And there's something about um, I want to be the one who's good. I want to be the one who's right. I want to be the one who's liked. And if I'm if I, I'm the good guy here, the way we do that, you know, we so desperately want to be part like I was thinking about your story before about being bullied as a kid and and this 
and in the spiritual communities, there's a lot about love, you know, and, and feeling love for all humanity. And that's been a big part of my own journey. But actually what I wanted is I wanted people to like me. And there is something very harmful about not being liked that I feel we don't really quite um, talk through or something in that way so well. Well, who doesn't like to be liked? I mean, even people who won't admit that they don't like to be liked, I think still want to be liked. And we all want to find our place in life. And I know for me, being kind of more of a loner, just based on how my life is going, like I've kind of gotten used to being that one-man gang. So mm. even with that being said, I'm still trying to find my place mm. and I'm still trying to find that niche, that place where I belong mm. and feel that uh, sense of acceptance. And I mean, just go relating to what you're talking about. I know that right now I have a job a work from home job and it's a lot of online interaction, not a whole lot of dialogue like this. And I feel like through that, I've learned a lot, not only about myself, but about people as well. And I feel like one thing I've learned that might go back to some of those patterns I was talking about was maybe not, maybe being a little too sensitive at times and not giving people a chance because it's real easy to misinterpret things mm. when you're talking mm. online and everybody's got, you know, something going on, their approach, mm. and they may not be thinking about how they're coming across. Whereas mm. I think people like you and I are very mindful of how we're coming across and how we want to be interpreted and accepted. And I've really had to learn, like I've always been the kind of person to just kind of go and go with the flow, not stir up the pot a lot and not really ruffle feathers or stand up to people. Like I don't like a whole lot of conflict. But I've had to learn that sometimes you just have to kind of like, you have to find it within yourself to change that pattern and that habit. And maybe when somebody's talking to you in a way that you don't like, you have to take it upon yourself to kind of, you know, I, I guess, put aside being liked and just step up and say, hey, this isn't cool. This is like, I don't want to be talked to like that. And I've actually found that a lot of times that might actually resolve the issue. So I'm not really sure exactly where I'm going with that, but <laughs> I, I, I think it just speaks to taking stock of yourself and being mindful of these patterns, these situations and doing something about it. 
Yeah, and and also I think there's something about paying attention to things that we don't want to know. Like I was so shocked and I was really like, wow, I come across as so cold and aloof and superior. People have been telling me that for years in workplaces. But because on a one-to-one, I'm I'm not really like that. But I but in workplaces, you know, I'm quite intimidated. And I've worked with a lot of women and women can get really nasty very quickly on very spurious grounds, you know, like there's something weird about the way that women work as, you know, I know that I'm a feminist, but I just go, you know, that's just, there's a lot of cruelty that happens in workplaces by women to women. Um, and I'm not saying I'm any different, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not always mindful, and, um, but I think there is something really useful about paying attention to, like, you know, you spoke before about being sensitive and how do people mean it and, and how do they come across and how do you interpret that. But there's also something about maybe there's a useful message here too that something about... How do you, gee, this, this, this person's saying the same thing. I've heard this before. Yeah, and, and people are saying, oh, yeah. So what I like to do in is kind of my favourite thing is bring to mind a, a, a conversation you had that felt a bit uncomfortable or, you know, you, you've got somebody in mind, you had just met somebody through your, your meeting online And I bring that to mind and I go, what am I not seeing about this? And it's a funny sort of question because it it doesn't make logical sense. What am I not seeing about that? Well, how can I see something that I can't see? Like that's just kind of thing. And that's the point of the question because it's not a logical question, so you can't answer it too quickly. It's one of those ones that kind of you have to mull over. And while the brain is mulling over that question, the rest of the part that has a, a sort of more wisdom and awareness can come forward and go, yeah, well, that's because you're a bit aggressive or, you know, you're a bit sharp or something like that. Or it might be, yeah, they're actually not a very nice person. So, and it can be both, you know, like it doesn't have to be binary. It can be a whole lot of things. But just simply asking, what am I not seeing about this? And then going for a long walk or cleaning the house or uh, something fairly manual, I think is is good. Something that moves the body is good to do. And that really starts to, that has been my my saviour is what am I not seeing about this? Because then I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm actually, so in that instance where I was aloof and cold and superior, I was going, actually, I'm just really afraid. I'm really intimidated and I don't know where I'm going here and I feel like I could be caught out or in trouble. You know, I could do it wrong and it's setting something up. But if I hadn't asked that question, I wouldn't know that. So that's a really good one. So if people are saying the same thing and, and you're kind of going, yeah, but I'm the good guy, there's something really valuable about listening to that, you know, because there's a lot of wisdom there. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I, so I want to 
mention, at least from what I read up on you, like you, you specialize in helping in the workplace and startups, entrepreneurs, and that's kind of like where your passion is. And I feel like when I talk about my little work problem that kind of got all that started, where, where did you like develop the passion to help people with mindfulness and all these great topics and things that you do? Uh, where did you develop the passion to specialize in the workplace rather than just, you know, maybe any old person like me or whoever else uh, might be interested in getting more in touch with themselves? What, how did you find that passion? It found me, actually. Um, a really good friend of mine was having a lot of problems with work-life balance and he just said, oh, can you give me some coaching on that? So uh, we started there and then another friend said, you know, I just really want to learn how to meditate. Can you, can you support me in how to do that and unpack everything? And then I reached out to another friend and I just said, oh, is this something that you would, if I were to do this, is this something you would be interested in? So they said, yeah, absolutely. And then it just sort of, uh, I sort of went into well-being for a while, but I wasn't really any good at it, to be honest. And so people would come and then they'd go and I was like, yeah, anyway, so this clearly isn't working, but the meditation stuff was really working. So, and, you know, I've worked in a lot of different countries and I, I, was, I was secretary, executive assistant for a long time. I've done, done lots of things, but, but invariably in the admin role, people are often they go oh yeah the admins you know like I wouldn't be able to do anything without them but then they pay them really badly and they don't give them any promotion opportunities so I just go yeah anyway so that's a good dose of bs you know like that's <laughs> that's rubbish but the thing about being an executive assistant is you get to be a fly on the wall so I, I knew exactly what all the staff were thinking about the boss because they would tell me and they're going oh He's such a pain and he's so arrogant and he's really like, yeah, he's just interested in himself or she is. So you know that, uh, what's her name? Elizabeth Holmes, I think, bad blood. And, and one of my colleagues said, yeah, she's like bad blood. So it was my boss and, and um, yeah, so she's very, very psychopathic. Um, and, in fact, the only people who I've known who been deeply psycho what I'd call neurologically psychopathic are women so we don't talk about that women are much better at mimicry than men so that's why they took a long time to understand autism in girls it's because we girls are really good at mimicry and that's what sort of makes them kind of go under the radar and it's the same with psychopaths I think it's a lot of mimicry and but I'd see all this stuff and the bosses were like oh they won't notice that I'm doing, you know, I'll call the meeting. I know exactly what I'm going to do, but um, I've got it, you know, I'll, I'll just give them the option of coming forward with ideas, but basically I know what I'm going to do. And then, you know, I go, okay, it's time for the meeting. And they, one of the guys goes, I don't know why he calls these meetings. He knows what he's going to do. 
we just go through this whole spiel of I want to hear everyone's opinion, but then he just does what he wants to do anyway. It's just a complete waste of time and he's kind of a bit of a dickhead. So I think, you know, you do know what's going on for someone. You can't hoodwink them. And I just saw that over and over and over again. It was as if the CEO thought, well, I'm, if I just pretend that I'm really engaged, they'll think I'm really engaged. And I just was going, that's rubbish. I just can tell you it's rubbish. So, um, yeah, I, I really observed a lot of blind spots, a lot of denial, a lot of fakery, um, just so much BS. Like, really? Do you really think people are that stupid? Like, you know, and then, and then there's this whole thing about I'm going to, you know, I worked with one woman and she's like, oh, I'm really interested in people and HR and, and people doing well. And what, um, she had a subordinate come and she just said, yeah, well, if you've got any problems, you just ask me. That was her introduction. And you just go, yeah, you're so not interested in anybody else except your own ambition actually but you do this you think you are because you talk a lot you think you're interested in people but actually you're just interested in yourself and I think there is often that thing about communication that we think that if we talk a lot we are good communicators but that doesn't mean to say we are good listeners and so I became very and I was so crap at communication so I was spending all my time looking around because I was just getting people offside left right and center I had to learn what worked. And uh, it's much simpler than you think. Like good communication is really simple and it's not talking. That's the surprising thing. It's listening, but you've got to ask really good questions. So I'm happy to share that with you, but I want to make sure I've answered the question that you asked. Oh, you more than answered it. And actually you use the word there, at least once or twice, a lot of what you just talked about, I would normally define it as politics. Because working in an office environment, whether it's a startup, a corporation, whatever it is, there are certain politics. Sometimes the politics are good and genuine, but a lot of times when we say politics, it's more negative, but you use the word mimicry, and I actually looked up the word mimicry. It is the action or art of imitating someone or something, typically in order to entertain or ridicule, which that's very strong language, and it's actually, I think, tends to define these issues better than just saying, well, that workplace is political, you know, it's all politics. Like, I think in a lot of cases, it's actually mimicry. So I, I just found the use of that word really interesting. And now I'm going to use that word in my own way. <laughs> I just joined Toastmasters and they're like, what's our word today? And our theme today, because it's it's winter here. So last night it was along and there was like winter. 
And then the, the word for today is blustery. And I feel like your new word for today is mimicry. <laughs> Generally, I, I would say mim mimicry is just the capacity to copy and mimic another person. But it can have this derisive uh, um, to, to sort of humiliate as like the court jester in a way, you know, that that kind of thing. But I, I didn't, I certainly didn't mean it in that way, in, to be as a kind of a form of humiliation. But I think we can be quite humiliated by, you know, like Amazon, you know, just the horrible things that Amazon does to their employees. Oh, and gosh. it ab oh wow, like they are, they are, if you want to know what Darth Vader is like, you just look at Jeff Bezos, you know, <laughs> he's like the evil empire because it's like all this thing, I'm doing it for the great good, you know, and, you know, he's spending four, you know, he spent four minutes in space. He spent $6 billion or something. You could so save the whole of world, global hunger with that money. And what do you do? Four minutes in space. What a waste of time and energy that was, you know, like what, a, you know, that's just ridiculous. And he's just, they set up all their employment conditions to, um, so that you can't form groups, so you can't unionise. And then they have these warehouses and they, they put them in really poor communities. And so it's like, you know, that's, and then he goes into communities and then tries to get as much as he can from them through the taxation. And it's this sort of thing I'm giving to the community because I'm employing all these people but he's actually completely shafting them. And that's the kind of thing that I, I'm really interested in, in people just going, do you really think people aren't going to notice that you're completely shafting them? Like, what do you think? We're all stupid just because we haven't got as much money as you are and we're not as driven to use people. Do you think we're that dumb or something? Like, we all know what it's like to be used. Like, don't be stupid. So they were sorry about my rant. It's my anti-Amazon Darth Vader kind of tirade. I'm sorry about that. 40% of the US economy goes via Amazon. Think before you click, you know, like right. really. Well, appreciate the rant. I totally understand <laughs> where you're coming from. All good on this end. One thing that I do want to kind of get into is being an entrepreneur, being like CEO of a startup, it's kind of a lonely gig. And if that's like one of your focuses for therapy, mindfulness, um, how do you go about helping those people to maybe prevent themselves from burning out or having self-doubt? Like how, how do you help them? What are some areas that you find you need to step in and help people like that out with more than anything else? I don't think you can stop a person from feeling isolated. Um, I generally, so I have a client and he he initially came because he was um, he was up until one o'clock in the morning watching Netflix. And then he was tired and irritable and it wasn't really working. He wasn't exercising. He wasn't, 
eating properly, wasn't drinking lots of water, had a really bad social life. Like he was definitely on a downward trajectory. And so just it took, wow, it's taken a couple of years. It takes, my sense is it takes 18 months, 18 months to every week make a change, like to, for that change to be implemented. So I want to encourage you and your audience to really reflect that whatever it is that you're wanting to put into place, it's going to take 18 months. That's not a small amount. There is something about the mind that requires that amount of time. Um, but I just... I, the first thing I did was to get him to go to bed earlier. We tracked it right down and we went, well, what's really the issue? Yeah, you're going to bed at one o'clock in the morning and then you're getting up and you're not able to function and then you're resentful and then you feel like you have to reward yourself with Netflix and all that sort of stuff. So to really look at what is the emotional reward of those behaviors so that's what I do so if it's come one of the things I've been thinking about in the last couple of weeks is comfort eating we all like to have chocolate bar and eat things you know do that but what I've started to really focus on is that what what comfort seeking seeking comfort is about is actually that we don't feel that we are safe so we might feel like we're in a poor work conditions. And so we might feel we're not in a, 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 a good relationship. We might feel like our friendships are a bit threatened. We might just feel like the world is a bit hard. So we're looking for a place of safety. And how do we find safety when we're sort of on our own? We don't feel socially confident, you know, able to reach out somewhere. And there's, you know, fast food as far as the eye can see. You know, it's ubiquitous to the urban landscape, isn't it? You can just, and anyway, you, if it's not, not where you are, you can just get your little app and dial it and off you go, you know. Um, but it's really about the seeking of safety. That's what I think is a big part of what comfort eating is about. So looking at those sorts of things, um, and it's true that when you're on your own, it's really hard. It is very isolating. Um, so I always encourage people to, there's a really fantastic book for time management. It is the best book on time management ever. And it's, I was actually telling a client about this yesterday and I'll just hold it up to the screen. I don't know if this, this is probably an audio, but it's called, you can see it, Mark, but it's called uh, Smart Work by Dermot Crowley, Centralize, Organize, Realize. Now, I don't, I've never met this guy. I heard him on a, another podcast and I just went, this is brilliant. Basically, what he does is all those emails that you get, you're really overwhelmed. How am I going to get around to doing all that? He tells you how to do that, how to manage it, how to schedule it, set up tasks, all that sort of stuff. And uh, it's very practical, it's super easy to read. So I think getting the emails um, contained into a schedule is really good. So that's definitely um, really central. If you don't, if you can't keep on top of your emails, that's really. Um, that's a problem. 
So on your own, so that's one thing. So managing your time. Um, it is difficult about playing around with the ideas. And I think you need to reach out to a community, find a community. What do I do here? How do I do that? Problem is I find that there's a lot of noise and a lot of marketing and a lot of BS. And I don't really trust anybody to um, be truthful with me. So um, that that's a problem. But then if you're in with somebody, the biggest killer, and I see this in my with all my clients who start with a co-founder, it's the interpersonal conflict. It absolutely is number one as to why they go wrong. And so it's really important in that instance to improve your communication skills. And I'd almost be inclined to, when you start off the business, do some kind of couples counselling, you know, communication skill. Because just to have common language to understand how you, you're both working, you might think, oh, yeah, but we, you know, we talk. It is then at one point it'll be the absolute clincher because it just gets tighter and tighter and harder and harder. The money's there, the stress is there, the, um, what, which direction are we going, how are we pivoting. Um, this customer wants that, you're not producing. You know, there's a lot of disappointment to navigate. And, and it comes out in the way that we communicate. And, we, you know, it's like um, disappointment is a really big thing. If you think about the things that have been painful in your life, disappointment, you know, like is, that's probably the thing in your interpersonal relationships and even in your Zoom calls that you, you've got there with your colleagues where um, they were just a bit, they didn't do their work, you know, and how do you navigate that? Or somebody comes across and you just feel like they're disappointed in you. It's very painful because it's got this sort of, do I feel humiliated? I'm not sure I feel humiliated, but I sort of do. And I sort of feel ashamed and I sort of feel a bit guilty. So, yeah, I've done a bit another ramble on another way. No, that's okay. <laughs> I hope um, I've answered a question there. Well, you hit on a topic that hit home for me a little bit. Something that I'm actually kind of going through a little bit is that I stepped into a job where when I first started, it's an online environment, there were so many people getting hired and trained at the time that I started that I almost kind of felt like I got pushed off to the side, didn't really get like too much of a formal training. So I'm learning a lot just from listening, from reading documents and SMPs. And every time I feel like I have like a pretty good grasp, something comes up where it, I, you know, I wind up being wrong or overlooking something. And I have kind of blamed it on how I was like trained, like the whole training process. And I, I noticed how much it bothers me where as on the other end, it might not be that huge of a deal, but I personally am so used to being such a master of my craft and what I'm doing and taking pride. Like I'm not used to being in that position where I'm like getting all these things brought back to me 
And I'm just kind of wondering as you were talking if that's something that you've had to deal with with other people in their uh, whatever they're doing. And if so, how do you help them to rationalize that and uh, kind of get past some of that? So there's two things there that I want to address. And one is, um, this is a question I ask, and I ask, uh, I, I ask my clients this when they get caught up with, you know, I'm right and I'm, you know, I got, I got blamed, I was wrong. And whenever this question about being wrong is, is, is dominant. And so think of your, your, the, your topic that is your big topic that you know the most about, in, you're most curious about, you're most engaged with in the whole big wide world. So what is your number one kind of interest? Uh, you're asking me what my number one yep. interest is? Yep. Oh, gosh. Uh, that's such a good question. I mean, do you mean just in life in general? You know, some sometimes people like, you know, really interested in birds in budgerigars or sometimes, you know, their, their whole identity is about, well, I'm really interested in software design or, uh, you know, anything. Like, so I'm really interested in Buddhism and psychotherapy and all that sort of stuff. So just one interest that, that really is kind of captures, and you know a lot about this topic, what would that be? I would say... Oh, gosh, I don't know. People know me for being very knowledgeable of, like, popular music, like pre- Great, great. We'll just go with that. That's great. All right. So popular music. If somebody were to, if you, if if somebody came to you about popular, popular music and you went, okay, 100%, 100%, I know this 100% for sure about popular music, about all the popular music in the whole big wide world. How much could you be 100% sure that you knew the answer to? Uh, depending on the topic, I mean, I'm pretty good. You ask certain people who've gotten to know me, they'll be like, wow, this guy knows his stuff. Um I'm just going to throw out, especially since you're in Australia, we'll narrow it down. I know ABBA was huge in Australia and still is. They're like my all-time favorite band. I think, at least as an American, I know pretty darn much about ABBA. So let's use that as a topic. Okay. All right. So your number one um area of specialty is ABBA music and as an ABBA fan they completely saved my life I've, so anyway um I'll tell you a bit about ABBA in a second but um how much of all the ABBA knowledge you know about Agnetha Feldskog and Anifid and Bjorn and uh Benny so how much about them the band the music everything, would you say 100%, you know, 100% is irrefutable about ABBA? Uh, I, I'm pretty darn good. I mean, I, I mean, I know. I just want a percent, I want a percentage. Sorry, I wasn't clear. Just a percentage. So if all the knowledge there is about ABBA, what's a percentage? I'm going to say at least 95%. Okay. 
about all knowledge about ABBA in Sweden, France, Italy, South America, how all popular that was everybody, everywhere, all over the world, the lyrics, the various songs that they did in all the different languages and how they wrote and when they wrote and how. So, you know, 95% of that. I, I feel like I've done my homework. I've been a fan a long time. I've bought a lot of books. I have uh, done my research online. I mean, as far as like success, I know that they were successful in some pretty obscure places. I know they, they weren't as successful in a place like the States, although maybe a little more successful, like a smidge more maybe in Canada. Obviously, absolutely gigantic in Australia, pretty darn huge in like the UK. I mean, and obviously I know pretty good amount about the girls' uh, solo careers going back in the 60s and the guys, I know they had their own bands and they wound up meeting each other when their bands were on tour together. And so I don't want to take up all of our time on ABBA, but I, I'm pretty good. I'm, I mean, maybe okay. 95% is a little high, but I mean, I, it's impossible to retain every nugget. Right. Every and that's right. my point. That's my point. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. So when I ask, um, like I asked this to a software designer and he said, oh, around the world, everything about software design, about 2%. So like everything about popular music, you might say, or everything about ABBA music in all the different languages and everything else. I'm guessing you probably, you know, in a really given how much stuff there is about ABBA in all the different countries in the uh, 1974, so what, from the 70s and 80s, 90s afterwards before. Uh, all, I, think, I think probably I'd be more inclined to say you might know about 40% of everything in, in truth because you don't know what it's like, what it was like for ABBA in Australia in that time. So here, and you don't know what, you know, the songs are in Swedish mm-hmm. in, you know, like you don't know what those words, you don't know how to, you know, like all that and how popular they were and what the interviews are in Swedish. And there's a whole lot of stuff actually that's kind of outside your your sort of site. So say you're 40%, 100%, 40, 100% you can be unequivocally wrong about is about 40%. And then you've probably got a good hunch, maybe another 20%, 25 So we're at 65%. So there's 35%. Actually, you could be completely wrong about. And my feeling is that's quite a generous percentage about how much a person knows about a topic. So generally, most people say, when I, they, I, I thought I knew a lot, and it turns out I know about 2%, 2 to 5%. And then, you know, um, but I can have a pretty good guess about another 20%. So usually it's about people know about 80, uh, people know about 20, 25, 30%, but 
is actually unknown and unclear and could easily be wrong. And so I I really want to kind of look at that part that is unknown and given you can't know everything to know about everything, even in your most amazingly right topic, like this is your most devoted topic ever, you're obsessed by it. So um, you're still going to have huge gaps. So you take your workplace where you've just arrived, the orientation has been pretty crap, um, they've taken on too many people, too fast, too quick, and you're getting making mistakes, you're getting it wrong. Um, the question is how much do you know about company procedures and about the work you had to do, the, the people involved? Maybe you knew about, I don't know, 15 20%. So, of course, you're going to get 80%, 80 whatever it is, 85%. In good chance, you 80% chance you're going to get it wrong. So that's one part of that question. So I, sorry, I, it took so long to kind of get there. But, and how quickly we are to defend against being wrong. But what's wrong with saying, oh, well, I was completely wrong about that. Like last night with a client, I had, I just said, I was, I was going through this process with you for the last few weeks and I was, I was going down the wrong tree. I'm sorry, I was really wrong about the way that I did that actually. And I, you know, and I'm just really sorry that I that we that I I tried this and it and it didn't work. So I am sorry about that. And um, and how difficult it is to say that we are wrong. You know, that's one thing. But the other side of what you're saying is also that uh, now there are three types of character. I'm aware that we're kind of coming up to time, but there are three kinds of characters. Uh, basically, people who move against and they tend to be socially dominant so I would be of that character people who move away um, and they're people who either kind of the boffins of the world who kind of sit in a lab somewhere and miles from anywhere and then people who move towards and they're people who tend to placate be it you know, try and always do the right thing by other people. Always, it's it's a lot about service to other, negating one's own well-being. Um, those people, and I think you're probably in that category, would have a strong tendency to negate their own body needs, not be very good at uh, sensing when their body is well and unwell. And often they get quite sick because they're not very good at reading the internal signals. But there's a, the inner critic gets placated. So that mind that says, uh, you know, you've missed something. And it's like, oh, what have I missed? And this obsessive kind of need to make sure that that's correct and be perfect. And there's a lot of, uh, often there's a lot of guilt that's driving that. So I don't get so caught up in guilt. I get caught up with humiliation. So that's usually mine and disappointment. That's usually a big part of mine. Um, but humiliation is, is a big part of my fear. But for someone like you, I would imagine oh, I feel guilty that I did the wrong thing, that I put these people out of there. You know, I've, I've taken time up from them and, and that sort of stuff. And that's part of this inner critic system, which is lis listening to the voice and always paying heed to the voice um, that can never be placated but seeking always to placate 
always do the right thing, always pushing. I don't know if any of that sounds on the right track. I think you're somewhat on the right track and it's something that I know I've tried to work on. And I think for me, and there's always just been a big desire to not disappoint, to impress, to stand out for people, to be like, wow, you know, that person has, you know, they're right on the money with everything. And that's a bit unrealistic to think that way. And I guess I have a track record for not wanting to be the bad guy or not wanting to say the wrong thing or maybe do the wrong thing and just to really listen to what's expected and to try to follow that. But I think as I've gotten older, I've started to learn that, look, I have to listen more to what Mark Schmidt really wants and what's really going to make me happy rather than trying to make other people happy. And I think for me, so very quickly, I know we're kind of coming up on time. I know you just mentioned that. I started out my career in my field with the same company for 10 years and kind of had that mindset, put myself up to that standard, wound up being disappointed a lot, even when I succeeded and got promoted. I just never felt like no matter how much I tried to align with the mission statement, the goals of the company, whatever it was, I just always kind of felt like, and that's kind of an absolute to say always, but I felt a lot of times like I just wasn't hitting the mark. Like I felt like the way the values and the goals and the mindset I brought, I felt like, well, if I just have that work ethic and that mindset, I'm going to go so far up the corporate ladder that like I may wind up being CEO eventually, which is a bit silly. I don't, think I wanted to be CEO where I was working, but you kind of get the point that that's the mindset and that's what I brought. That didn't always matter. And there's a lot of other, you know, mimicry and politics Mm. that Mm. play Mm. into that. And there's been a lot of lessons learned. What I did was a great experience and I, I loved it for what it was, but I learned a lot from it. And I think this journey since I left that job has been more about trying to find myself, make myself mm. happy. And I feel like we went full circle on that. That's kind of where we started in the beginning. And uh, yeah, this, you know, Wendy, thank you so much. I knew this was going to be great. And it gives me and hopefully others a lot to think about and as we kind of get wrapped up here I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell people how they can find you how they can work with you and wherever you may or may not be on social media the floor is yours 
Thank you very much. And thank you for like being really engaged in this process and looking up mimicry. I didn't even know that about mimicry. To me, it was so much about just copying, you know, and, and I see that a lot in the workplace. And yeah, it is how people, it's actually not about how good you are at your job. It's how good you are at relationships. Actually, that's all that gets you to the top. It's how good you are at the relationships at navigating the politics. It's just some people are really good at that. I can't live with myself because I can't be false with myself. So I, I can't do that. Um, and, it, yeah, it's, it's a complicated process. So I just wanted to say thank you very much for your sort of sense of integrity and honesty and truth here and, and really engaging in this process. I really appreciate um, yeah, just the process of hanging out with you in this interview. And uh, if people are interested in finding me, I've, I've got the website, it's brand new. The contact box now works, which I'm really pleased about. And it's www.kindlycutthecrap.com. And I'm really rubbish at social media. And I know I'm supposed to have an Insta and a TikTok and a Facebook and a this and a that and all the rest. And I have these advisors who tell me I should be on 25 different social medias, but I really don't like social media that much. So I've just got my LinkedIn account and it's Wendy Nash. And, uh, you know, presumably, Mark, you'll put that on, on the thing. I think it's you know, LinkedIn and it's Wendy hyphen Nash or something like that. I, I'm a bit, there's another Wendy Nash in Sydney. Don't go to her, go to me. <laughs> but if you can't find it, then find Mark and he'll let me know. So that's, that's the other place. Well, Wendy, thank you very much. I, I told you I would be very engaged and I'm glad that I did not fall short. And how can I not be engaged when we're talking about ABBA and all these other great topics that I love talking about. I'm so delighted. I thought I was the only ever fan in the whole country. They were like, you've obviously seen Muriel's Wedding, where, do you, do you know the movie Muriel's Wedding? Yes. And I remember looking at that movie going, oh, that's my life. They were just completely like, my life is all just a complete horrible just time and Abba was like oh this is something nice it was so I loved it so I'm so pleased I have actually spoken with Agneta Feldskog once wow um, really yeah and I and I I do speak Swedish but I used to speak Swedish so I I, I have I had all these Abba songs in Swedish so <laughs> yeah they, uh, they have quite a few uh songs I think later on they stopped recording in Swedish but in the beginning, there were a few, I know, like Ring Ring, Waterloo. They have some of those in Swedish, but I cut you off. Go ahead and continue. Well, what's what's interesting about ABBA is, you know, we think, oh, you know, they write in, in English and da, da, da. But English is not their first language. It's their second language. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine. So I don't know. A lot of people in the U.S. speak Spanish. So um, you can imagine what it's like to have to write in Spanish. Could you write a song in Spanish? No chance that I would ever do that. Right. How hard is it? And how many songs did they do in the equivalent of Spanish? And then they wrote in Italian. And then they wrote in Spanish, actually. They did songs right. in, in Spanish. So to write in a foreign language is quite a skill, and they did it. Right on. Very yeah, talented. and I think that kind of gets forgotten. They made it look 
so easy, and it totally wasn't. And to your point, I only know maybe like 1% of that. I don't know the other 99%. I don't know, you know, what they might have been eating or drinking to help themselves to produce such wonderful music. And I, we could probably go on and on about this topic. <laughs> I should probably just uh, wrap this thing up. And Wendy Nash, thank you so much. She's a mindfulness meditation coach at Kindly Cut the Crap. And believe me, there was no crap to be found hour plus that we talked. Wendy, thank you so much again. I'm Mark Schmidt. This was Mark My Words, and I'll be back very soon with another awesome guest. Thank you very much, and I'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks again for taking time out of your busy day to listen to Mark My Words. If you would like to connect with me beyond the show, you can find me on LinkedIn at Mark Schmidt, where I will be talking about entrepreneurship, careers, and anything else that is on my mind. You can also connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Nimrod1979 and Nimrod Sending I respectively. This podcast also has a page on Instagram at Mark My Words. And finally, if you want to leave me a voicemail or check out what I'm up to with the podcast, come find me at podpage.com slash mark dash my dash words. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back with a new episode soon. Bye for now.